Today's reading is Galatians 5:13 through 24. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The sermon this morning begins with a particularly devastating excerpt from a short story by Flannery O'Connor. I read it because she so poignantly captures what it is like to be blind to the grace and love of God. The main character is Hazel Motes. He is in a city in the south, and a blind, a blind preacher is handing out religious tracts. And it causes Hazel to remember something that happened to him when he was a young boy. As a young boy, he went to a carnival. He snuck into a tent that was only supposed to be for adults, and he saw a woman. And when he got home, he was filled with such guilt that he hid behind a tree, and yet he could still feel his mother's gaze piercing through him. She approaches him, his mother approaches him, and here's what happens. Hazel stood flat against the tree, dry-throated. His mother left the wash pot and came toward him with a stick. She said, what you've seen, what you've seen, she said, what you've seen, she said, using the same tone of voice all the time. She hit him across the legs with the stick, but he was like part of the tree. Jesus died to redeem you, she said. I never asked him, he muttered. She didn't hit him again, but she stood looking at him, shut-mouthed. And he forgot the guilt of the tent for the nameless, unplaced guilt that was in him. In a minute, she threw the stick away from her and went back to the wash pot, shut-mouthed. The next day, he took his shoes in secret out into the wood. He never wore these shoes except for revivals and in winter. He took them out of the box and filled the bottoms of them with stones and small rocks, and he put them on. He laced them up tight. He walked in them through the woods and what, for what he knew to be a mile. 
until he came to a creek. And then he sat down and took his shoes off and eased his feet in the wet sand. He thought, that ought to satisfy him. Nothing happened. If a stone had fallen, he would have taken it for a sign. After a while, he drew his feet out of the sand and let them dry. And then he put the shoes back on again with the rocks still in them. And he walked a half mile before he took them off. And that is where the story ends. Hazel Motes is a parable for us. He is asking the question that all humans in one way or another ask. The question is simply this. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This question all humans ask to some God. In the presence of a God, you feel guilt and you feel shame. You believe that you must do or become something else in order to be loved, in order to measure up. This idea in Christianity is called legalism. It is the idea that you must do or become something you are not in order to be lovable, in order for God to love you. So you ask God the question, what do you want me to do for you? So that you will remove this guilt, so that you will remove this shame, so that I can finally be loved, so that I can finally belong. What do you want me to do for you? Hazel Motes walked a mile into the woods with rocks in his shoes. And when he gets there, he says, that ought to satisfy him. But the God to whom Hazel tries to satisfy with his self-destruction is silent. Of course, it's not only Christians who ask God, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, from a place of desperation. There is a whole pantheon of gods in America who exact and demand from us. The God of beauty. In the presence of the God of beauty, you feel guilt over what you've eaten. You feel shame about how you look and you cry out, what do you want me to do for you? In order to be beautiful, in order to belong. In the presence of the God of success, you feel despair over how far you've come and how far you still have to go. You are ashamed your peers have surpassed you and you're frustrated that no matter how much you give, it is never enough. What do you want me to do for you in order to be satisfied finally, in order to measure up? And of course, there are many other gods. Uh, we might say money, sex, and power. And many other ways humans ask this question. But what everyone has in common is despair. Is this devastating idea that you must become someone else in order to be loved. That you must do something you cannot in order to be lovable. I wonder if you know anyone who experiences this who experiences guilt and shame, desperation and despair when their life is formed by this question asked out to some God, what do you want me to do for you? If you're like me, you know this experience firsthand. Hear the good news. The true God comes to us in Jesus Christ. And although he comes as King and Lord, Perhaps we might say, because he comes as king and lord, he does not demand of us what we cannot give. He does not exact of us what we cannot be. Instead, this God gives us his very self. 
In the presence of the true God, we are declared righteous in our guilt, we are declared lovable in our shame, and when he comes, he asks us the question, what do you want me to do for you? He does not ask out of desperation, and he asks out of love. Humanity asks God, what do you want me to do for you? And God comes to humanity with great love and suffering and asks, what do you want me to do for you? The question, um, we have been in a series called Live the Questions Now. It is based on a letter that Reiner Maria Rilke wrote to a young poet. Who had, uh, this young poet had what Rilke could only describe as a beautiful anxiety about life. Rilke tells this young poet that there is nowhere any, no one anywhere who can give him the answers to the questions that are so deep within him that they have a life of their own. Rilke says even if someone could give him an answer, he wouldn't be able to live it yet, and the point is to live everything. Rilke tells him, live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, Live your way into the answer. And so for the past several weeks, we have allowed the questions that Jesus asks us to encounter us, to meet us, with the hope that we will live the questions now and perhaps one day live our way into the answer. I hope my words this morning will not be an answer to Jesus' question to us, but will only serve to enlarge and make urgent the question he asks us. And the question is this morning, what do you want me to do for you? And this already that our Lord Jesus Christ would ask us is gospel and grace and love and hope. But when we look at the Gospel of Mark where Jesus asks the same question in two different scenes, we encounter something profound. Two scenes are juxtaposed set right up next to each other. A dispute among the disciples and the healing of a blind man and the two stories interpret one another. And this one question that Jesus asks bind, binds the two stories together. When Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? He removes our blindness and gives us sight. He exposes our disordered desires and reveals what we most truly want. And he gives us perception into his identity and mission. We are going to go through the text in the way that a good mystery novel develops. A mystery novel begins at the ending, say a finished, a finished crime, and it moves backward to the beginning when you finally find out who did it and how and for what reason. Uh, so we're going to begin with the last scene uh, in this small series of stories in Mark and move our way back forward to the beginning. If you would like to follow along uh, in a Bible, you can open it to Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 46, page 847 in the Bibles under the seats, uh, or of course feel free to use a Bible app. Uh, the text we'll begin with again is Mark 10:46. In the first scene we see Jesus encounter a blind beggar. But the climax of this story is not, as you would expect, Jesus giving the man sight. 
We tend to read these stories and see Jesus do a miracle and think Jesus is powerful, Jesus is merciful, and that's good, of course. But the mighty deeds of Jesus are also signs. Signs to Israel, signs to the disciples, signs to us. They show us who Jesus is and what he is about. So uh, let me first sort of tell the scene to you from Mark and then make a few observations. Jesus and his disciples and a crowd come to Jericho, and they're already on their way out when a blind beggar is sitting alongside the way. He hears that a person is passing through and that that person is Jesus of Nazareth. The blind beggar, sitting beside the way, begins crying out into the darkness, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. People nearby tell him to stop, to shut up. And the text is that blunt. But the blind beggar does not shut up. He begins crying out all the more and all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, who has apparently been passing by him, stands still. He says, I want him to come over here. And the people say to the blind man, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So the blind beggar casts off his cloak and he springs up and he comes to Jesus. And now Jesus answers him with the question, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, Rabbi, let me see. And Jesus says, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately the blind man sees and he follows Jesus on the way. A few things to notice. The blind man calls Jesus the son of David twice. This is a very peculiar thing to call somebody. Uh, But it's a royal title. And from what we can tell, there was a fervent longing at that time for God to raise up the son of David to be king to overthrow Roman rule, to restore Jerusalem. Uh, Consider this early Jewish text written in roughly the same time period as Jesus. This is from the Psalms of Solomon. Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them, your people, their king, the son of David, at the time known to you, O God, in order that he may reign over Israel, your servant. And gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. He shall destroy the arrogance of the sinner as a potter's jar. These are indeed intense words, aren't they, about the expectation for the son of David. They convey the intense longing for God to restore the people of God. And there's a certain view of what the kingship of the son of David is like at work here, isn't there? This king will be great. He will be mighty. He will overthrow the nations. He will cast out sinners. Keep this image in mind because it seems to capture what Jesus' disciples thought he was like. It captures what they thought his kingship was like. And it will be 
the blindness of the disciples in this respect that Jesus is going to remove in the next story. But there is also a longing here for God to restore the hearts of the people. And the blind man was more perceptive to this than perhaps those around him were. Jesus is the son of David who would restore the people of God, which means he would remove the blindness caused by their idolatry. The Psalms say that the idols of the nations are the work of human hands. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. And those who trust in them become like them. That is, those who trust in idols that do not see themselves can no longer see. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says he speaks in parables so that people might see but not perceive, hear but not understand. And the point is clear. Israel has been blinded and deafened by her idolatry. So now, what does it mean that Jesus gives sight to a blind man in this story? So when the son of David asks this blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? He can even think to respond, Rabbi, let me see. And he sees. Keep in mind this meaning of sight and blindness. The second observation I want to make is that you might remember that the story begins with a blind beggar sitting beside the way. But it ends with him, uh, now seeing, to be sure, but more importantly, it ends with him walking alongside the way of Jesus in the way of Jesus. What is the way? Why is it important? This too uh, becomes significant. Moving backwards then to the next scene, beginning in Mark 10.35, we see a conversation that Jesus has with his 12 disciples. In this scene as well, Jesus removes the blindness of the disciples, but this blindness is not a defect in the eyes. It is a defect in the heart. They are idolatrous. Their desires are distorted. Jesus asks them the question, what do you want me to do for you? And he exposes their blindness. He gives them true sight, true perception into who he is and even into what they truly desire. Here is the scene. James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, approach Jesus. They say, "Uh, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What a way to approach Jesus, right? And Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? They say to him, grant us the privilege of sitting at your right and at your left when you are in glory. Remember, they're going to Jerusalem. Remember the expectation of the son of David, the Messianic king who shatters unrighteous rulers and sets his kingship in Jerusalem. So you think this is perhaps what the disciples are thinking. Let us sit on your right and left when you enter into glory. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Do you see what's going on here? The disciples don't know what they're asking because they fail to see Jesus. They are blind to who he is. They are blind to what kind of king he is. Jesus continues to speak them and their blindness continues to be apparent. He says... Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They say to him, yeah, yeah, we're able. (laughs) I do wonder, uh, 
they're blind. They don't see what Jesus is talking about. And if they don't understand that Jesus is talking about his imminent suffering in Jerusalem, what might they have thought? Well, the cup in the Old Testament is not only the cup of God's wrath being poured out, it can also be a cup of the king, a cup that overflows with wine, a cup of abundance. Uh, Baptism could be um, not only passing through death like the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, it could simply be a bath. And so you imagine the disciples hearing Jesus ask them, um, are you sure that you can drink the very best wine out of my cup? Are you really sure you can take the best bath that Jerusalem has to offer? And they say, yes, yes, of course we're, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, They don't perceive what Jesus is about. Their desire for glory blinds them. Jesus says to them, The cup which I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And with that, the conversation is over. But then you have these other ten disciples. And they realize what's going on. They realize James and John are trying to oust them from the seats of glory and power when they come to Jerusalem. And frankly, the ten disciples are angry. So Jesus calls them all to himself. And this is the moment where Jesus exposes their blindness, exposes their idolatry, and reorders their desires. So pay attention. Jesus says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the nations lord it over them. You know how their great ones exercise authority over them. You imagine them thinking, of course, that's how power works. That's how kingship works. That's what we want you to do. They are blind to the kind of king Jesus is, and this is where he gives them sight. So this is so good. It's so profound. Uh, Jesus says, uh, so the rulers of the nations lord it over people, the great ones exercise authority over people, it shall not be so among you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you perceive what Jesus is doing here. He is opening the eyes of the disciples. He is opening their eyes to what his kingship is really like, to what greatness is really like, to what belonging is really like, and indeed, to what they, in the end, really want. In truth, the disciples did not know how to answer the question Jesus asked them, the question, what do you want me to do for you? Because they were blinded. Or at the very least, they were short-sighted. There's a wonderful C.S. Lewis quote uh, that talks about how our desires can actually blind us to what we truly want. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Christians have taught from the beginning that our desires can actually blind us to what we truly want. 
uh, to what we truly long for, to our most passionate love, which is Jesus Christ himself. So early Christians speak about, for example, uh, disordered desires when they talk about sin. Sin cannot come from creation because God is creator and God is good and creation is good and abundant. How could something distorted or evil come from creation itself? Uh, Sin is a problem of disordered desire. It happens when we make good things into ultimate things. It happens when we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. And then we become like what we worship. We become blind, we become deaf, we become numb. And inevitably, we begin asking the gods we create, what do you want me to do for you? We become desperate and despair, which is where we began the sermon. But Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? And actually, any answer we give is likely to be weak and half-hearted in the face of such staggering and unfathomable love that Jesus shows us. Jesus, you see, sort of answers the question that he gives the disciples. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In that The heart of God is revealed to us. Jesus, it's not in spite of Jesus being a king that he will love and suffer and give his life for his disciples. It is precisely because he is king, because he is Lord, because this is what God is like, that he suffers for us, that he gives himself for us, and that he invites us to live into that answer. So what does Jesus' serving really look like? What does his life as a ransom for many look like? And this brings us to our final scene, and it reveals what the way is that the blind beggar followed Jesus on. In the final scene, we come to the beginning, and everything is brought into clear focus. Here is the scene. The disciples are going up to Jerusalem in the way. And Jesus is, going ahead of him, uh, Jesus is going ahead of them, and they are astonished, the text tells us. They began to be afraid. And he took the twelve disciples aside again, and he began to speak to them about the things that were about to happen to Jesus the King in Jerusalem. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to death by the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the nations. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will whip him. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What a scene. What gravity. And here the character of the true God is revealed. Jesus sets his face like flint towards the royal city, Jerusalem, to be enthroned as king, and, when, and he is enthroned as king in Jerusalem. He is, he is clothed in royal robes. He is crowned with a crown of thorns. He is enthroned on a cross with a sign hanging over him that reads, King of the Jews. This is what the kingship of Jesus looks like. This is what God looks like. 
And then after Jesus is dead for three days, God raises him from the dead. And I want to read you this reflection uh, by one of my professors on what, uh, what the resurrection means in light of Jesus' suffering. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead to be sure, but this was less about overturning Jesus' suffering and death and more about showing that this suffering Jesus, disgraced and degraded, is in fact Jesus the Lord, God's own Son. Jesus' Lordship is witnessed in his rejection and shameful death, not in spite of it. When we grasp this truth, or better, are grasped by it, this changes everything. We began at the end, we looked at how Jesus gave sight to a blind man who perceives who he is and follows him on the way to the cross. We looked at how Jesus gives sight to his disciples, who although they see, did not perceive who Jesus was, what his kingship was like, and what his mission was like. And finally, we move to the beginning where we see Jesus clearly. He is the Lord who comes as a slave. He is the king who comes to serve. He is the Messiah who gives his life as a ransom for many. And in the suffering of Jesus for us, for you, you perceive who God truly is. So where does that leave us? I hope it doesn't leave us where it left Hazel Motes. Remember Hazel Motes. His mother tells him, don't you know Jesus died for you? And he is condemned. He is overwhelmed by guilt. He is overwhelmed by shame. And he mutters, I didn't ask him to. Hazel, too, was blinded by the overwhelming grace and love that God shows him in the suffering love of Jesus. I hope these words help you encounter the Jesus who opens our eyes, who shows us his true character and his true mission, who opens our hearts to the suffering love that he has for us, the Jesus who invites us to join him on the way to the cross. I am about to leave you before God in four minutes of silence. And here's what I would invite you to do. Hear Jesus ask you the question, what do you want me to do for you? And hear yourself in that you. And be honest with the Lord Jesus. Perhaps, like the blind man, you want to be made well. You are sick, you are struggling with employment, you are grieving loss. Don't be ashamed. Hear Jesus ask you, what do you want me to do for you, and ask to be made well, so that you can get up and follow him on the way even more. Or perhaps you identify with James and John. You realize your desires are, dis- uh, your desires are disordered, your eyes are dim. Your first answer to Jesus' question is truly, Jesus, I want you to make me successful. I want you to make me beautiful. I want you to make me rich. Be honest with Jesus. Let him meet you. 
realizing that when he does, he might just reorder your desires and give you eyes to see and ears to hear his gospel. Hear the Lord Jesus ask you, what do you want me to do for you? Thanks be to God.